From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dennis Kim. Earlier this week, we had several fantastic guest professors join us on rounds to discuss the management of the difficult gallbladder, and I wanted to give a big shout out to Dr. Sharmila Disanaki, Michael Truitt, Jessica Keeley, Angela Neville, and Dr. Christian DiVirgilio for joining us and sharing their thoughts and approach to performing a subtotal cholecystectomy versus converting to an open cholecystectomy. Be sure to check out that episode dropping later this week. Given that the focus of our last rounds was acute mesenteric ischemia with a primary focus on the small bowel, today I thought we'd move down the GI tract and discuss acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, aka adynamic ileus of the colon, also known as Ogilvy syndrome. Now, although operative intervention is seldomly required for this particular disease process, it's amazing how often, as surgeons, we're consulted to assess a patient with a quote-unquote dilated colon on abdominal x-ray or CT. With that said, if left unrecognized and untreated, progressive and prolonged colonic distension may progress to, you guessed it, colonic ischemia and, eventually, perforation. Regarding learning objectives, by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, discuss the proposed mechanisms and risk factors for acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Number two, recognize the clinical manifestations of this disease. Three, initiate an appropriate and safe workup for Ogilvy syndrome while ruling out other causes of colonic distension. And finally, you should understand the stepwise pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approach to management of this condition. Acute colonic pseudo-obstruction presents with the signs and symptoms of a mechanical obstruction, which may involve both the small and large bowel, but in the absence of a mechanical cause. As you'll recall when we classify bowel obstructions, in addition to noting the anatomic location, small versus large bowel, and the presence of a high-grade or low-grade obstruction, also termed operative or potentially non-operative obstruction, we want to and must distinguish mechanical from functional etiologies of obstruction. Back when Dr. Zielinski joined us on rounds, I shared with you the mnemonic shaving, which stands for strictures, hernias, adhesions, volvulus, intussusception, neoplasm, and gallstone ileus. These are all mechanical causes of bowel obstruction, which if not recognized and relieved, may require operative intervention. And these are in direct opposition to functional causes, for which identification of the underlying cause, combined with non-operative management strategies, typically results in resolution of the obstruction. Acute pseudo-obstruction of the colon was first described by Sir William Ogilvy in a case series of two patients, published in the BMJ in 1948. In both cases, the cause of the acute colonic dilatation was attributed to an intra-abdominal malignancy that didn't directly involve the colon. Also, absent was the presence of an obstructive lesion to explain the colonic distension. Although there's no precise mechanism to explain the colonic distension seen in the setting of acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, 
I do find it amazing that Dr. Ogilvy's initial theory that the autonomic nervous system plays a significant role in this disease process still seems to carry weight today as the most plausible explanation for why patients develop this disease. More than 60 years ago, Dr. Ogilvy hypothesized that dysregulation of autonomic impulses in the enteric nervous system of the colon could result in a clinical picture consistent with large bowel obstruction, but in the absence of a mechanical cause. This notion that the autonomic nervous system is involved in gut motility is supported by modern-day observations. For example, following spinal anesthesia or trauma, we know that disruption of the parasympathetic fibers from S2 to S4 may result in an atonic distal colon and a functional proximal obstruction. With that said, it is hard to explain why or how patients without parasympathetic nerve involvement may still go on to develop significant colonic distension. When it comes to risk factors, there are many. Patients tend to be older, and there does seem to be a male predilection. Those with a history of being institutionalized and patients with a history of psychiatric disorders treated with antipsychotics are also commonly seen. Ogilvy's may occur following severe illness due to sepsis or following trauma, whether it be operative or non-operative. Interestingly, this condition is more common in injured patients who are being treated with non-op management. Other risk factors include cardiac disease, a whole host of medications, particularly opioids, anticholinergics, antipsychotics, dopaminergics, calcium channel blockers, and cytotoxics, as well as electrolyte disturbances, typically the hypos, hypo-K, hypocalcemia, and hypomagnesemia. In terms of clinical presentation, abdominal distension is the most common presenting finding. Abdominal pain is also encountered in the vast majority of patients who are able to communicate. Nausea, vomiting together with constipation or obstipation, and paradoxical diarrhea may also be present. In the past, we've encountered patients in whom the abdominal distension was so marked or profound that they develop dyspnea or, if intubated, increase peak airway pressures due to intra-abdominal hypertension. On exam, the abdomen is typically soft yet distended and tympanitic to percussion, although mild tenderness to palpation is not uncommon. The presence of unexplained SIRS or sepsis together with peritoneal signs should raise concerns for an intra-abdominal catastrophe in the form of visceral ischemia, perforation, or both. A big pitfall here, at least in my eyes, is failure to perform and report the results of a digital rectal exam as it's crucial to rule out mechanical causes for a distal large bowel obstruction of which an anal rectal malignancy is one of them. Before discussing the diagnostic approach and workup of patients with suspected acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, I want to emphasize that this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Therefore, our first priority is to rule out a mechanical obstruction due to, say, a colorectal malignancy or volvulus or other potentially morbid and treatable disease processes like C. diff colitis or a toxic megacolon. Once and only once that's been done should you be comfortable with your diagnosis of Ogilvy's and then assess for complications related to this diagnosis. 
In terms of diagnostic workup, the imaging modality of choice is, you guessed it, CT of the abdomen and pelvis. As many of these patients may be critically ill, it may come as no surprise that a plain film of the abdomen is oftentimes the first imaging study performed. Although I wouldn't rely solely upon a plain film to rule in a dynamic ileus of the colon, however, serial abdominal x-rays, once the diagnosis has been established, may be helpful to monitor colonic diameter. Given the lack of specificity of plain radiographs, you'll definitely want to follow up with a CT, which often demonstrates distension of the colon from the cecum to the mid-transverse colon or splenic flexure. There may be air throughout the entire colon as well. Again, this disease process doesn't need to involve the entire colon, and the great thing about CT is that it can help you rule out a mechanical cause for the colonic distension, i.e. a malignant stricture at the level of the splenic flexure, while also providing valuable information about the presence of other intra-abdominal pathology. The decision to perform a contrast enema or add rectal contrast to your CT abdomen pelvis is a matter of preference. A few points here, and I don't typically administer rectal contrast, but in terms of key points, number one, do not perform this in patients with possible peritonitis. Number two, use water-soluble contrast. And three, bear in mind that colonic intraluminal pressures may be increased with the performance of this procedure, thereby raising concerns for iatrogenic perforation. The latter concern is also the reason why we typically avoid performing endoscopic procedures, which usually require insufflation of air, provided that there are no contraindications to frontline pharmacologic interventions. While we're on the topic of perforation, I do want to take a couple of minutes here to talk about the rule of threes as it applies to clonic diameter and Laplace's law of wall tension. And as I think about it, I don't necessarily know that it's a rule, the rule of threes, but probably more of a guide. And for me, when it comes to the upper limit of bowel dilation on imaging, I typically start getting concerned when the small bowel is greater than three centimeters in diameter colon 6 centimeters in diameter, and the cecum greater than 9 to 12 centimeters in terms of an upper limit. Now, the reason that the cecum is the most common site of perforation in this setting is based on Laplace's law of wall tension, which states that tension is proportional to the pressure times radius, albeit of a spherical structure, which the cecum is not, and inversely proportional to the wall thickness. Given that the cecum has a larger radius than other parts of the colon and is also the thinnest, when colonic distension occurs and is sustained, wall stress is greatest in the cecum, resulting in reduced flow and eventual ischemia as well as perforation. When it comes to management of patients with acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, the key goals here are to hopefully identify and treat any underlying cause or causes together with decompression of the colon in order to avoid the morbidity of colonic ischemia and perforation. And here I'd like to refer you to the 2016 American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons CPG, or Clinical Practice Guidelines, for colonic volvulus and acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Essentially, the big things here are supportive or conservative measures, administration of pharmacologic therapies in the form of neostigmine intravenously, followed by endoscopic decompression 
and rarely surgery for patients in whom ischemia or perforation have occurred or among those few patients who are refractory to first-line neostigmine or second-line endoscopic decompression. Initial management consists of conservative therapies provided that patients do not manifest signs of peritonitis or a clonic diameter greater than 12 centimeters. NPO status, administration of IV fluids, together with NG tube decompression and serial exams are all that are required initially. Electrolyte abnormalities should be aggressively corrected and labs assessed to rule out features concerning for unresponsive or untreated sepsis. Occasionally, a thyroid panel may be sent to rule out hypothyroidism as a potential contributor. Also, any medications that are not absolutely necessary and that are associated with slowed colonic transit should be discontinued. Again, when these meds are antipsychotics, the risks and benefits of holding such meds really needs to be weighed, and I would get input from your psychiatry colleagues. On the topic of medications, you may be tempted to give laxatives or oral osmotic agents via the NG tube. Don't do that. These meds may actually worsen clonic distension through the production and propulsion of gas into the already dilated colon, thereby worsening matters. First-line therapy for patients with a cecal diameter greater than 12 centimeters or failure to improve with conservative measures after 48 to 72 hours is the administration of IV neostigmine which is an anticholinesterase inhibitor. Essentially what it does is it reversibly increases acetylcholine levels in the synapses of the muscarinic receptors of the parasympathetic nervous system. And as you may or probably don't recall from GI physiology, acetylcholine enhances contractility and accelerates colon transit. In at least three prospective, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, IV neostigmine resulted in resolution of colonic dilation in approximately 90% of patients. It's actually remarkable how many well-designed studies have been performed evaluating the role of neostigmine for the treatment of adynamic ileus of the colon. The key take-home point here is that whether you give it as an infusion over 24 hours versus slow bolus over five minutes, or whether you decide to give two milligrams or five milligrams or need to give a second dose, in general, many more patients will have a clinical and radiographic response versus not. My personal practice is to administer two milligrams IV as an initial dose slowly over five minutes. With that said, there are a few key points to bear in mind. Neostigmine therapy should only be administered in a setting in which continuous monitoring is available. Remember that neostigmine acts upon the parasympathetic nervous system. Therefore, patients are at risk for bradyarrhythmias, heart block, hypotension, and asystole, as well as bronchospasm. As such, you should always always have atropine and glycopyrrolate on hand and ready to administer. Outside of these potentially life-threatening and scary signs, patients may also complain of things like excessive salivation, abdominal cramping, nausea, and vomiting. 
For patients with contraindications to neostigmine, for example, uh, recent MI, bradycardia, or severe reactive airways, endoscopic decompression of the colon is a viable and reasonable procedure. It's certainly not uncommon to require more than one sitting of decompression, and for that reason, our GI endoscopists will typically leave a decompression tube in the transverse colon, which is placed to gravity with or without flushing every four to six hours. Key points here are that patients should not undergo mechanical bowel preparation, as mentioned earlier, and minimal insufflation should be employed. Of note, the risk of perforation with these endoscopic interventions is approximately 1-3% to in the setting of an acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. So what's the role of surgery for patients with acute colonic pseudo-obstruction? Well, overall, surgery plays little role in the management of the vast majority of patients with this disease process as the previously mentioned therapies together with patients are successful most of the time. For those patients who manifest peritonitis due to ischemia or perforation, the decision-making there is fairly straightforward. They need an exploratory laparotomy. Now, the questions that do come up is, what if you get in there and there's no overt perforation? There's no overt ischemia requiring bowel resection. What should we do to manage those patients? Well, in those particular settings, people have discussed things like performing a psychostomy. That personally is not my preference. Uh, They're finicky, they make a mess, and it's really not the the best way of decompressing the colon. So I think you really have a a couple of things to decide when you're intra-op, that is to perform a bowel resection or not. And again, in the absence of overt ischemia or perforation, my tendency would be to do nothing. The question is, would you keep that patient's abdomen open, come back for a second look? My preference there would be to not do that and to close the patient and continue providing conservative and supportive care. In patients who have a perforation, and again, we said that the cecum is the most commonly perforated location in terms of the colon, the decision becomes, should we perform a segmental resection, i.e. an ileocecectomy or right hemicolectomy? versus performing a total abdominal colectomy. I think the decision to perform a limited or segmental resection versus total abdominal colectomy really has to take into account a number of factors, including your patient's current clinical condition, as well as their past medical history and your level of expertise, as well as comfort. And the same principles apply to whether or not you want to perform an anastomosis versus an ileostomy or an anastomosis with a diverting loop ileostomy, for example. With all that said, as we've already discussed, conservative therapy, supportive therapies, together with pharmacologic and endoscopic techniques, really do form the foundation for successful management of patients with acute colonic pseudo-obstruction in the vast majority of patients. Once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Rounds and for making this show such a success. Please do stay in contact with me and make sure that you share the show with your friends in the world. You can leave us a kind comment on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you normally download your podcasts. And do visit us on social media. The handle is at Trauma ICU Rounds. We're on Insta, Facebook, and probably most active on Twitter. If you have feedback for me or thoughts for a show that you don't want to share with others, feel free to email us. We're at traumaicurounds at gmail.com. 
Really looking forward to our next episodes. We have some fantastic guest professors joining us on rounds. Until next time, please stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another. 